Take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Since we'll be reading two chapters this morning, I assign this reading to myself. People cannot say that uh, I just assigned long readings to them. Uh, So we'll be reading chapters 7 and 8 of John this morning. As we continue our study here in the Gospel of John. Now, one thing I would like to mention is there's going to be a section that uh, is included in some people's uh, Bibles that we will be skipping over. Um, If it's included in your Bible, it's uh, verses uh, 53 of chapter 7 through verse 11 of chapter 8. Um, In my Bible, it's put in brackets, and it says the earliest manuscripts do not include this section, which they do not. Um, It's only later manuscripts that have it, nor do the early church fathers quote from this section at all, which we have pretty much our entire New Testament quoted by the early church fathers. So this section is um, very strongly not likely part of John's original gospel. It was added later, so we'll be skipping over that. Some people might have it in their footnotes. Um, That section we'll be skipping over. So we'll go right from John chapter 7, verse 52 to John chapter 8, verse 12. So if you could follow along with me, starting in John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jewish feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him... There is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's 
whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees, hearing the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to, who, to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me? And where am I you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When he heard these words, or when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? And Jesus answered, 
you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, 
If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity as a church to read your word, to have it open before us so our eyes can see and our ears can hear. Lord, it is a privilege that we should never take for granted to the opportunity to hear your word read, to read it ourselves, to hold it in our hands. There are many Christians today who don't have those opportunities. Maybe just a small portion of your word is available to them. Maybe just a small uh, opportunity is given to them to read your word. Lord, and yet we have it here before us. Opportunity to read it and now to learn from it. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Or that your word would truly be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, as we come today to your word, I pray that you would bless us as your people. Let us not only hear it, but let us then seek to apply it. Lord, allow it to affect our lives. Lord, let let the the preaching this morning not just be, be the presentation of some information about you, but as we hear that information, that it would transform our hearts, our minds, our actions, or that it would affect us. We pray not only for ourselves, or we pray for Faith Bible Church just down the road here, for Pastor Bob and Kevin and Pastor Jay. Lord, we pray for them that today as the Word is preached and presented there at their church as well, that, Lord, you would allow them to, to partake of it, to eat of it, to, to learn from it, to apply it. Lord, we pray for Pastor Vaughn Sanders at First Baptist Church in Bolingbrook again. Lord, let your Word be preached and let it be applied by the people. We pray for Pastor Ryan and Gospel Hope Church in Atlanta. Lord, as your Word is faithfully preached, Lord, may they hear May they know, may they live it out. Lord, today, give grace to me as I present your word. May I do so faithfully. May I do so in a way that is understandable. May I do so in a way that covers two big chapters. Uh, in a way that would honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to be continuing our study here in the Gospel of John. And uh, as we've said before, the, the Gospel of John is all about proclaiming Jesus Christ. John is seeking to proclaim Jesus Christ specifically to Jewish unbelievers, but there's a lot here for us to gather and understand as well. Whether you're here as an unbeliever or a believer, there's stuff here for you to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and then to proclaim Him yourself. And that's our theme this year. And so we want to join with John in proclaiming Jesus Christ. Currently, we're walking through a cycle in John's Gospel of four religious feasts. And uh, we looked at the Sabbath, and we've looked at the Passover, in light of, and Jesus in light of those feasts. And today, 
we're going to take the first section of uh, the, the Feast of Booths. We're going to preach the second section next week. It goes all the way to chapter 10. Jesus is here at this feast, and uh, we can see a lot going on here and uh, how Jesus relates to it, and hopefully this morning we'll be challenged by that. Um, then, uh, the last week, we're going to be looking at the Feast of Dedication in chapter 10, and Jesus' response to that. Now, last week when we looked at the Passover, um, the main point was we proclaimed Jesus as God's sole provision for life that divides true disciples from false disciples. And we're going to see some of these truths that we saw last week continue on through here. I mean, as I read, what did you hear? You heard this constant fluctuation between the people who were seeing and experiencing Jesus Christ. At one minute, they're like, well, maybe He is the Christ. And at the next minute, they're like, but we know where He comes from, but we're not so sure. And there's this division that occurs throughout um, these, these, these two chapters. Uh, one of the things that is, is interesting is that th- there's, a, there's an importance about who Jesus actually addresses in this chapter. And one of the things that stands out to me is sometimes when, when there seems to be a conflict, and like verse 20, the crowd, the crowd has been confronted by Jesus to the, the fact that they're trying to kill him, and the crowd's like, wait, you must have a demon. I mean, who's trying to kill you? But then we read a little bit further, and he, he addresses the people of Jerusalem, and the people of Jerusalem say, hey, isn't this the guy that they're trying to kill? <laughs> like, some of the people knew that, that, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus, and some people didn't. And why is that the case? Well, because this is a feast where the majority of, of Israelites who could make it to Jerusalem were traveling to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of people here from, from outlying areas from Galilee. I mean, Jesus' brothers come down. And so they're, they're, there's all these people coming down. And so when he talks about the crowd, it's, it's just everybody is what John's including there. And, and not everybody knew that the Jews in Jerusalem were trying to kill Jesus. But when, Jesus, when, when John points out what the Jews in Jerusalem knew, what did they know? They know that their leaders are trying to kill Jesus. They know that uh, they're trying to take him out. And so we see kind of this this interaction going on between different groups and different people. Sometimes Jesus is talking to the Jews, which is meant to include both the religious leaders and all the other Jews there, so, and including the crowd. Sometimes it's, it's the, Jewish, the Jewish people from Jerusalem. At other times, he's talking specifically and directly to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so there's just a lot of this going on throughout these chapters. And, and understanding that helps us understand. Jesus is not saying everything directly to the same people every time. Um, so that's helpful in understanding these chapters. The structure is similar to chapter 5 and chapter 6. In chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, we start off with a narrative where Jesus does some signs and interactions with people. And then we get into teaching. What we notice here in 7 and 8 is that it, there's not a actual sign. There is a narrative. We have Jesus talking with his brothers and then coming to Jerusalem. So there is this narrative, but it doesn't include a sign like the other chapters do. But what we do find is that both the brothers and Jesus talk about signs. The brothers are wanting Jesus to go to Jerusalem, to go to this feast where there's just going to be numerous Jews from all over um, Israel so that Jesus can show himself to them. So that Jesus can be the sign of who he claims to be. 
Now, his brothers don't understand exactly what Jesus' purpose is, and so they miss the point that this is not the time for Jesus to actually show himself for who he's meant to be. Ultimately, um, John continues to say, his hour has not yet come, his hour has not yet come, his hour has not yet come, and they can't arrest him because his hour has not yet come. Why? Because there's there's coming a day very soon when Jesus will do the very thing that his brothers were asking him to, but just not in the way that they thought. He will give himself so the world might see him. And it will be through his death on the cross. But his hour had not yet come. So we're, he's not going to go there quite yet. But not only that, we see that Jesus refers to a previous sign that he had done when he talks with the Pharisees. And this is back in chapter 5 where Jesus heals the man next to the pool on the Sabbath day. And this is kind of where, where we start to see the Jews really wanting to kill Jesus because he is threatening their traditions. And here Jesus argues that, that Moses allowed certain things to happen on the Sabbath day. And in fact, a baby would be circumcised on the eighth day, even if it fell on the Sabbath. And they felt like that was the, the right thing to do for the care of the baby, for what God had commanded them to do. And so Jesus' argument here is if, if you're willing to do that on the Sabbath day, why can't I make someone fully whole on the Sabbath day as well? Like You're missing the point of the Sabbath. So he directs us to signs, and then he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them, which leads to verse 43. Kind of, again, looking at the structure. We have the narrative. We have Jesus teaching. He have this declaration that we're going to look at in just a minute. I, uh, if anyone is thirsty, they may come to me. And then we see a conclusion in verse 43 where there's division, where some believed and some did not. And, and John's going to do that cycle over again. Again, God's, Jesus is going to declare something, verse 12 of chapter 8, and give some general teaching. And then in verse 30, we're going to find again this division. Many people believed, implying that other people did not believe. In verse 12, uh, 20 of chapter 8, it, we're told that some of them wanted to arrest him. I mean, that's how much division is going on. And then we get into like the, the, the meat and potatoes of Jesus' teaching, where again, he uses these, truly, truly, I say to you, giving these main points out to us. And at the end of that, we read, the Jews all picked up stones in order to kill him. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting chapter how John has laid this out and how they fit together. There's, there's this continual teaching or declaration by Jesus that causes division and then more teaching that causes division and then ultimately teaching. And, and what's interesting about the last part of the teaching, you look over at verse uh, 30. Uh, not 30. Let's see. Yeah, 31. The last aspect of his teaching. So Jesus said again, we're, we want to point out who he's speaking to. He keeps speaking to different groups. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. This, this, the greatest amount of his teaching, the most centralized amount of his teaching where he gives these truly, truly statements is actually addressing not the whole crowd of the Jews, but all of them who had claimed to believe. Those end up being the people who pick up the stones to kill him. Are the ones who we've been told throughout this chapter and many believed and many believed and many believed and now he speaks to those who believed and they pick up stones to kill him. 
Very, very interesting what's going on here. So let's dive into it a bit. In order to dive into it, we need to understand what the Feast of Booths are. The Feast of Booths, or it's often called the Feast of Tabernacles, or it's often called the Feast of Ingathering, was established in Leviticus chapter 23. It was an eight-day feast where for seven days they would come together and do these specific rituals, morning and evening and throughout the day there'd be sacrifices, and on the eighth day they would have a holy convocation, a gathering with a food offering, and it was treated like the Sabbath where no one was supposed to be working on that day. It was a celebration day. It was meant to be a reminder of Israel's time dwelling in tents or booths in the wilderness. And so the people were meant to build for themselves booths out of different types of wood, whether palm branches or uh, willow branches or other type of branches. They would build booths for themselves to remind themselves of the time when Israel lived in tents and God provided for them during that time. It was also an annual thanksgiving It was right after the last crop was gathered in from harvest. And so it was a celebration of what God had provided for His people. That's why it also got the name the Feast of Ingathering, because it was the last gathering of the crops. It was in the seventh month of the Jewish calendar, which equates to our October. So this is an October celebration. And uh, most notably, it was celebrated in Nehemiah 8, as the people began to look back into God's law and see what was necessary. And during this, during this feast, there was two symbolic practices that began to occur. Now, they weren't listed in, in Leviticus 23 as things they needed to do, but they were developed as they continued to receive revelation from God and through the prophets. They began to do two ritualistic symbolic um, acts. One was called the water drawing And the other was called the lamp lighting. And in in these two acts, they sought to both remember what God had done in the past and look forward to what God had promised in the future. And the fact is, there's a connection between what's going on here in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 with these declarations of Jesus and these two specific rituals. The water drawing ritual is what we're going to look at first. The priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam in a golden pitcher, give it to the high priest, and the high priest would carry that water to the temple. And he would do that every morning of the feast. He would pour it over the altar with the drink offering of wine. And this was, it's interesting. I mean, it doesn't like hit me as the happy occasion that's described, but the Mishnah describes it as th- in this way. He that never has seen the joy of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. I don't, it must have been an amazing celebration that occurred there. It was meant to symbolize two things. The first is God's provision of water in the wilderness through the rock. So the, the people are thirsty and God provides water from a rock. Interestingly, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that that rock was Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us. And so their celebration here at the Feast of Booze was meant to remind them of the water that God had provided for them. And interesting enough, we've already heard Jesus talk about that with the woman at the well. He's the one who provides living water. Living streams of water will flow from you, given by Jesus Christ. But it was not only meant to, to... to remind them of what God had done in the past, but 
to point them to what God was going to do in the future. And this comes from the prophets, from Ezekiel and Zechariah. Um, God's provision of renewal and cleansing in the messianic age under the new covenant. That, that, that God's people would be washed with clean water. That the altar would be flowing with this living water throughout the world and drawing people in. It is in light of this symbolic practice that Jesus declares in John 7, 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In this declaration, Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated. Through Isaiah, God invited the thirsty to drink from the water. It's one of the texts that they would read on their way to the altar was from Isaiah 55.1. And now here, Jesus declares that He is the only one who can provide this water. This water is the Holy Spirit that only Jesus gives to His people. So this morning, we're going to look at this as our main point. We proclaim Jesus as the only fulfillment of God's promised new life through living water and revealing light. We proclaim Jesus as the only fulfillment of God's promised new life through living water and revealing light. So our first point is on that living water. Jesus is the living water of new life. Jesus is the living water of new life. And I want us to focus in on this statement here in verse 37 and kind of break it apart a little bit. First of all, he says, if anyone thirsts, which is ultimately should be at least every human being. Every human being should be thirsting. Being spiritually dead as we are, we should thirst for living water. We who are dead in our trespasses and sin, who have broken God's law, who live in life without this living water. But we know that not everyone actually understands their need. Not everyone actually cares to drink from God's water. Jesus here in saying, if anyone thirsts, means that only those who are thirsty, who understand their need will come to Him. Some people, though parched and dry from their sin, do not see, do not realize their need. They're crawling in a desert of their own desires and their own sinfulness and their own way and their own purpose, not recognizing that they need water to have life. But there are some who thirst. There are some who see. We preach the Gospel this morning so that if there are people here who thirst, we want you to see that there is a place to come to. There is a place to go. What does Jesus say? His next phrase here, let Him come to Me. Let Him come to me. Why? Because Jesus is the source of living water. 
And that specifically is, as, as John points out here, now he said this about the Spirit. It's about the Spirit. Just like Jesus tells the woman at the well. Just like He tells the people that He fed. He alone is the source of real provision, real drink, real life. This new life that God gives through His Spirit. We can only gain it through Him. Only be given. And then the next, let Him come to me. And then He says, and drink. And drink. This is equal to whoever believes in me. Drinking is believing in Jesus Christ. Putting our faith, our trust in Jesus Christ alone. So to truly drink from Jesus is to truly believe in Jesus. And what does he say happens? Whoever believes in me there, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The new life promised throughout the Old Testament promised now by Jesus Christ, will be continued to be declared by His apostles throughout the New Testament. This life-giving water, this new life is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. For the Holy Spirit indwells His believers in ways He previously did not do. This new life offered to us through Jesus Christ. And, and And notice it says, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. It's important to understand what Jesus is saying there. Now, our heart isn't the product that produces the living water. It's God who gives it. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the one who gives it to you. But what is he then saying? It will then start bubbling over out of our heart. And why is that so important? Because out of the heart comes who we really are. Bad tree... Jesus says, produces bad fruit. Why? Because the, at the root, it's bad. The same thing's true of our heart. A bad heart produces bad fruit. We can't be spiritually alive if we have a dead heart. In turn, what does he say? Good tree produces good fruit because it's a good tree at its root. It is good and able to produce good fruit. What is he saying here? I can give you a heart that is actually living that can give out and overflow in living water. It will transform your life. You see, the the, the vision of the Old Testament water coming out of the rock transformed the Israelites' physical life. They were going to die. If they didn't get water, they were going to die. And then God gives them water out of a place where water doesn't normally come. All right? How many of you have rocks at your home that you go to to wash your hands and you know, get your drink? And you know, I got this rock sitting there. What is it there for? Well, that's where I get my water. It doesn't work that way, right? God does the impossible here to give physical life to Israelites. Now he's declaring, Jesus is declaring, he's going to do the impossible as well. He's going to take your heart hardened by sin dead to him and to spiritual things. And he's going to make it the place where the water flows out of. Amazing what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is promising here. But not only that, he, 
You know, as the Jews and their, and their symbolism are looking to the future, as they pour that water over the altar as it goes and spreads down. Here Jesus is declaring to anyone who thirsts. Did you put a caveat on it? Anyone here present this morning? Anyone who's a Jew participating in the Feast of Booze? No, he's if anyone thirst i mean the promise of this water that god was going to pour out on his people that goes out was to call all the nations in and here jesus is proclaiming himself as the one to whom anyone can come anyone who's thirsty can come and they can what they can drink and water will flow out of their hard, sinful heart because He transforms it. Anyone. He is the fulfillment. No wonder. You know, I've always wondered, why does Paul say, how does he get to that Jesus is the rock in, in the old time? I think partly it can come from, from what Jesus Himself claims. In light of the practices that were current of that day, He is the rock from which water flows. He and He alone. And then we notice here that the response was mixed. Some people thought He was the prophet. Some people thought He was the Christ. Then they struggled with where He was from. It's interesting. John loves irony. All right, They're like arguing about Him coming from Galilee, but we all know where He's from, right? He's not, I mean, he, he, he was living in Galilee, but he was born in Bethlehem. And we know it. <laughs> they don't know it. And the irony of it. Jesus knew where he was born. And, you know, there's some irony in the fact that they claim that no prophets came from Galilee because Micah and Elijah and Jonah all came from Galilee and maybe Nahum and Hosea as well. So, I mean, they don't even have any basis, any grounding. They're, they're, they're grabbing for whatever they can. They're focused, they're focused on finding anything, any robot to put in. Why? They are not thirsty. They don't know their need. Their hearts are still hard. And what comes out of their hard heart? Rejection of Jesus Christ. Or a shallow version of belief. What we're going to see, because the chapter ends with those who claim to believe picking up stones to kill Jesus for what He truly claimed. We want to believe who You are. Maybe He's the Christ, but when Jesus says, I am God, it's time for the stones. We're not going to believe that. Shallow belief in Jesus. Not only, though, did they practice this water-drawing ritual, but they also practiced a lamp-lighting ritual. Each night, four great lamps would be lit in the temple. And it was such a great light that in the Mishnah it read this as well. There was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by this light. It was bright. And And then it goes on to say, men of piety and great deeds would dance in the light. And there would be singing, and there would be praising to God, and there would be a procession through the temple with trumpets blasting at the end of, of them, and, and they would go around, and they would, um, they would go throughout the temple at each of the gates and blow the trumpets, 
And then at the end, they would all come back together and they would declare this. Our fathers who were in this place, their backs were towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east and they worshiped the sun towards the east. But as for us, our eyes are turned to the Lord. We are the Lord's and our eyes are turned to the Lord. I mean, this just shows their their desire to reject anything that would be like idolatry. Idolatry had sent them into slavery. It caused other nations to come and overtake them. And, and so their desire was to reject that. And this symbolism of the lights was meant to symbolize a couple of things to the Jews. And first was the presence of God with His people. When God delivered His people from Egypt, He appeared to them as a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. And this was to remind them of this. Not only that, but when God's temple was built in Jerusalem by Solomon, God's glory came down. We, they called it the Shekinah and resided in the Holy of Holies. And this was meant to again symbolize God's presence, this light that they would cast during this feast. But it wasn't just a symbol for the past. This was also a symbol for the future as well. As the promised light of God speaking out from Jerusalem giving light to the world, specifically to the Gentiles. And we, we find references. It's hard to go to one reference because there's so many references in the Old Testament by the prophets of the light of God shining out through His people to the non-Jewish people. And it is in light of this that Jesus declares in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in this declaration, Jesus is declaring, is claiming to be the fulfillment of all that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze anticipates. And again, through Isaiah, God declares that His servant would be a light to not just Israel, but to the nations that God's salvation would reach to the ends of the earth in Isaiah 49.6. And now Jesus declares Himself alone to be that light. So point number two, Jesus is the revealing light of new life. So let's take apart this statement of Jesus. First of all, he says, I am the light of the world. And this is the second I am statement by Jesus that is followed by a descriptor. There's seven total of these in the Gospel of John. And here, here in this claiming I am, he is claiming to be part of the Godhead. Part of God's revealing light. Part of the Shekinah glory of God. There is no other light given to the world like Jesus. Jesus is the only light that truly and fully reveals God and salvation to us. So much so that even Abraham, who believed in his faith was counted as righteousness, we're told in this chapter, looked to Jesus as his light. Not only does He say, I am the light of the world, but Jesus said, whoever follows Me, only Jesus can lead to life. There is no other light that will lead us to life. Just like there's no other water that will bring about 
living water springing from our heart so there is no other light that we can follow that leads to life other than Jesus Christ. So only those who follow Jesus finds life. And follow again, just like drinking is equated with believing in Jesus Christ. Putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We see that in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He. Believing in Him, whoever follows Him will what? Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Belief in Jesus brings light and life because He is the light that has come into the world, John 1, that brings life. But unbelief means you remain in darkness and you remain in death. In fact, we see Jesus be very explicit with this. Verse 21, you will die in your sins. Verse 24, you will die in your sins. And again, just like we saw with the, the, the hard heart, the stony heart, dead in sin, so we see the one who remains in darkness is dead in their sin cut off from God with no spiritual life in them. Yet, what does Jesus tell us here? Whoever, whoever would come does not need to walk in darkness any longer, but can walk in the light. It's through Jesus that we can come and find new life. The darkness of our deadness to sin is no longer the place where we have to remain and have to reside. We don't have to stay there. We can walk in the light if we turn to the One who is light. And He says, I am the light of the world. And again, we see He looks back to the Shekinah glory, but then He looks forward to the fact that this is the light of This is the light that goes out to whoever. He is the light of the world. Anyone can come to Jesus. Anyone can come and move from darkness to light. And again, what do we see? The response here is mixed. The resistance that we we find here given is a resistance to Jesus' authority. But Jesus claims that His authority is from the Father. He is doing the will of the Father. They need to trust in the revelation that the Father gives and that they hear through Him. He truly is. It's interesting. They argue against His authority and Jesus claims to be the revelation of God's authority to them. Which fits really well with the fact that He is the light. You don't know the Father because you don't know me. I reveal Him to you. Come to me and you will know the Father, Jesus is telling them. And yet, many still are rejecting Him. Yet, as we read in verse 30, many also believed in Him. But again, what does that mean? We move on to the last section and we see what it means. As verse 31, Jesus speaks specifically to those who believed in Him. And point number three, Jesus is the only fulfillment 
of God's promise, new life. Jesus is the only fulfillment of God's promise, new life. Here are people who are going to be claiming to believe in Jesus, but their belief is not enough because they do not believe that Jesus is actually who He is. They're still going to try to trust in something else. Namely, here, in being descendants of Abraham. It's interesting, they, earlier we looked at in John uh, a number of people claiming Moses, and now here they're going to be claiming Abraham. Abraham is the one they're going to base their, themselves on. Well, Jesus declares His words as God's truth here. If you abide in My words, you are My disciples, and you will know the truth. What kind of truth? The truth. God's truth. And the truth will set you free. Jesus is the Word of God, Old and New Testament. The Bible in its entirety is the words of Jesus. Not just the red ones. All of them are the words of Jesus. They're the words of God. They're God's Word given through men, but they maintain their own personalities in their writing, yet it is God who is behind them at work in them. The Godhead expressing themselves to us through this Word. And Jesus here claims to be the exclusive authority as God's prophet. You need to abide in My words because they are truth. And if you do, that truth will set you free. Not what others say. Not what others do. But mine. Again, it's not that others can't speak God's truth. Hopefully I'm speaking God's truth today. But I'm basing it on God's authoritative truth. The prophet spoke God's truth because God gave him the words to speak. But Jesus alone is the ultimate authority. He speaks on behalf of God in ways no one else can. And as they pit Abraham against them, it's very, very interesting. I mean, we've already addressed the fact that in their idolatry they were enslaved by other nations. We've talked about, you know, Moses, God using Moses to free them from Egypt, and then God being this pillar of smoke and fire. So it's, again, the irony of John. When they respond, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, Rome's kind of over you right now. I don't know. Noticed. How is it that you say we will become free? In fact, you'd almost think they'd respond with, yes, we were waiting for the one who's going to destroy Rome. That's what the Galileans did when God or Jesus provided them with food. They said, we'll make you king. And you can take care of all these Romans. But not the Jewish people here who believed. Rather, they kind of took an insult to what Jesus was saying. Is God's life ultimately found and fulfilled in Abraham or in Jesus is really the question that John is posing here. Jesus calls them to be his disciples and they respond by saying, we're offspring of Abraham. It's a direct objection <laughs> They're saying, rather than follow you, we're going to follow this. And Jesus is going to help them understand that uh, it doesn't work that way. In fact, if you truly followed Abraham, Jesus says, you would follow me. Because that's what Abraham did. 
We see in, uh, uh, three points here. They points out, um, but truly, truly, I say to you. And the first one we see is that everyone is a slave to sin. And Jesus is the only freedom. Verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus doesn't go to point out their inconsistencies historically. He goes right to the heart. He says, you know, if, you wanna, if we want to, let's talk about real slavery. I mean, other slavery, I mean, physical slavery, temporal slavery, I mean, that's real. But real slavery, eternal slavery, spiritual slavery, we're all slaves to sin if we commit sin. There's a collision here of the physical versus the spiritual life. In fact, Jesus himself responds to their physical claim of being descendants of Abraham by saying, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. You don't have to tell me. I know you are. But then in verse 39, he says, if you are the children of Abraham, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. He's playing against the two, the physical. I know you were born physically descendants of Abraham. But Abraham's children, now he's saying spiritual children, those who walk in the same spirit that Abraham walks, they would live differently than you. They would not live the way that you live. They, and, and in fact, they see what Jesus is saying and they make the switch themselves to a spiritual claim. So interesting. They've been missing the point all along and all of a sudden they get it right here. Because notice what they say. So he says, verse 39, um, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Well, they do. (laughs) They shifted from the physical claim of being descendants of Abraham to now saying, no, no, we're spiritual. We We have God as our father. Jesus confronts them. The reality of true spiritual life, of of a life who has been given, who has been given this living water flowing through them, who has been given the revealing light so that they may see a spiritual life with God as their father is loving Jesus whom God the Father sent. That's what he says. Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. We can claim to be religious all we want. But if God's truly our Father, we will love Jesus Christ. Everything about Him. Everything that He reveals to us about Himself. Spiritual death, rather, what does Jesus say? The devil is your Father. We are servants of the prince of the power of the air when we are living in our spiritual death, when we're living in our sin, when we have not embraced Jesus Christ and his salvation, we live with the devil as our father. And what is that? The rejection and the desire to murder Jesus whom God the Father sent. Now people can't murder Jesus today. He was already crucified and he rose again and he's seated at the right hand of God. But they still reject him. And they still live as if he were dead. Or he never existed. 
Their desire is to eliminate Jesus Christ. They don't need Him. They may be just even ambivalent to Him. They, they, just, they just don't care. No one can claim real spiritual life with God as their Father if they reject Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who's a slave to sin will die. I lost my place here. Uh, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Why is this so? Because everyone who's a slave to sin will die eternally. And Jesus is the only freedom from that eternal death. The only ones who will escape death are those who keep my words, Jesus says. Now, not physical death. And again, we see the collision of the physical and the spiritual here. What do they respond with? Well, wait, Abraham died. Wait, prophets died. Well, sure, physically they died. But spiritually they are still alive. Spiritually, Abraham did not taste Death. Eternal death. Spiritually, Abraham resides in the presence of God for eternity. And again, we see the reality of spiritual life. Spiritual life is seeing and rejoicing in Jesus. It's the Father who glorifies me, Jesus said. If I were to say anything different, I would be a liar Abraham himself rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Spiritual life is seeing and rejoicing in Jesus Christ, embracing Him for who He is. And spiritual death, again, is rejecting Jesus Christ. And then we have the last, truly, truly, I say to you. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So we saw everyone who is slave to sin. Jesus is the only freedom. Everyone who is a slave to sin will die eternally. But Jesus is the only freedom from that eternal death. And that eternal freedom can only be given by the One who is God. And that's what Jesus claims here. He claims the very name of God given to Moses to tell His people who He was sent by. And Jesus to those same Jewish people declare who He was sent by because His name Himself is I Am. The I Am who I Am. And finally we get to an undivisive response. The response to this is not mixed. Rather what we see, even those who had believed picked up stones to kill him how can this man claim to be god they would accept him as anything but this anything but what he truly is the one true god sent to give new life as only god can give and that's the challenge for us today we we must embrace jesus for all that He is. He is the one true God who has come to give new life to us. We must embrace Him as it. Maybe you're here today and you've never, you've never 
heard about Jesus in that way, that He is God who came to give salvation, to die on a cross for your sins and my sins so that we can escape eternal death. That's what we must embrace to be followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you have. You need to live. You need to live like you embrace it. And when you proclaim Him, you need to proclaim Him as nothing less than that. Sometimes we can get a little shabby in our proclamation. We get a little fearful. Oh, talk about a God who became man? I don't know, that's kind of weird. God who died on a cross and then rose again because He's God? Uh, I'll just tell them about some of it. It's interesting. Like our call is to our call is to proclaim Jesus no matter what. And, and when John presents to us what it looks like when Jesus would proclaim Jesus, you got mixed responses, and then everybody wanted to kill him. <laughs> so what should we expect? And yet, what do we find? We find that Jesus still had 11 out of the 12 who would follow him. He had others continue to believe. After his death and resurrection, we see that his gospel spreads throughout the world. We see at Pentecost and Acts, thousands saved. And we see the work of God continue to spread through his people at great cost, yes. Is there a rejection? Yes. But they proclaim Jesus Christ as the Lord. God of all God who came to give life, the only one who can give life. And that is our call as well. We must declare with Jesus, He is the I Am. To the glory of the Father. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your truth in this Word. Thank You for the patience of the people here that is able to work through uh, all that... Uh, all that was here and yet still more yet to come. Lord, we thank You so much for how Your Word speaks and how we're able to learn from it. Lord, give grace today, not just so that we can gain some information about Jesus, but that we would be transformed by these truths. Or that we would go out living in a way that proclaims we, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow our God, Jesus Christ. We live for Him. And while we may fear, yet His love and His goodness and His glory overcomes our fear so that we might proclaim Him in truth. So may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.